Before we begin today, I'd like to take a moment to thank my newest patrons, Alexander and Waffles, who went to patreon.com slash deep into history and attained the rank of historian for just 10 cents a day. Alexander and Waffles, my new historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. Consider this a foreword. This episode is something of a prequel to the episode Pyrrhus, the Last Hero. As such, I highly recommend that you listen to that epic before continuing this episode. For in The Last Hero, we learned the Macedonian ways of making war, including unit types and the strategy they employed. If that knowledge is fresh in your mind, it will greatly enhance your enjoyment of our tale to be. Consider that as we go forward. And with that said, this forward comes to an end. This is Deep Into History, and I'm your host Arjun Hundle. To start, and as a way to introduce you to our full cast of villains, or heroes depending on your point of view, we'll take a journey back through the mists of time and witness the death of a titan. With our modern eyes, we may be tempted to see him as just an emperor, king, or a particularly gifted ancient warlord. What we must force ourselves to realize is that he achieved something that is impossible in our world, in our time. While still alive, he transcended his humanity and became a god, worshipped by tens of millions. From Egypt to India, every culture had their version of his name, like Iskander, Alika Sundara, and Sikandar, just to name a few. He took a large and professional army that his father built and did what for hundreds of years had seemed impossible. He brought the mighty Persian Empire to its knees and subjugated its people. From his mother Olympias, he learned of her family's descent from Achilles and grew up understanding that she expected him to outshine his illustrious ancestor in everything he did. He learned philosophy at the knee of Aristotle himself. He learned the art of single combat from Parmenion, an exceptional warrior. And he mastered military strategy and diplomacy at the side of King Philip II of Macedon, his father. He grew up in the viper's nest that was politics of the ancient Greek world, and always remembered what his mother Olympias had taught him, that serpents fear lions. His conquest took him on a decade-long odyssey, from Greece to Egypt to faraway India, and in the process he took down the greatest empire the world had ever known. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and prepare to dream with me as we journey back to the year 323 before the Common Era, deep into the heart of the ancient metropolis of Babylon, and witness the death of Alexander of Macedon, known to history as Alexander the Great. Ready? Then let's go. You were standing in the most opulent room that has ever existed. It once served as the royal bedchamber of kings and emperors, set high in the ziggurat of Nebuchadnezzar. From the gardens on the vast balcony, just outside, come the sound of birds singing as they bathe in the fountains and pools. The midday sun illuminates the room and is amplified hundreds of times by the gold leaf and jewels that cover the walls and ceiling. Because of this, though you are inside, you stand in full daylight. On the bed in the center of the room lays your king, a man you once counted amongst your dearest friends. You love him with all your heart, only slightly more than you have come to hate him. You had ridden with Alexander since the beginning. You were of an age, and though you had not studied with the then prince, you had trained with him and learned the arts of war together. You had known each other for more than twenty-five years, had been his closest brothers for a time, but then you had come to see an ugly side of the man, a side that only a few years before you would have sworn didn't exist. Now seeing him splayed out on the bed, the sheets soaked with his sweat, and his barely audible ramblings being recorded by sycophantic Persian scribes, it all sickens you. Son of Zeus indeed, you scoff out loud, but it's barely an audible whisper. 
Seeing the fawning courtiers fighting for the honor of wiping the sweat from his brow reminds you of the moment you believe it all went wrong. Eight years ago, just after defeating the huge Persian army at the Battle of Gagwamela, the Persian king Darius fled the field after Alexander and his companion cavalry had charged straight at him. In his camp, he left behind his family and many of his advisors and courtiers. Instead of executing the officials, Alexander had ordered that they were to serve the surviving members of the Persian royal family. Not long after, he married two of Darius's daughters and absorbed their courtiers, counselors, and servants, making them his own. Their constant fawning, endless praise, along with whispers of jealousy and treachery had led Alexander to execute one of his father's oldest friends and his childhood teacher, Parminian, along with his son for an imagined assassination plot. Worst followed as they insisted that to win over the population of Persia and much of the empire, it would be much easier if they saw him as a god in the same way that Persian kings were the earthly representatives of their sun god, Ahura Mazda. In Alexander's case, they sent word throughout the empire that he was the son of Zeus and through his mother, Achilles, a demigod who as Hercules before him would ascend to Olympus upon his death. It certainly worked. Rather than fighting him as the army moved east towards India, many independent tribes bowed, dropped to their knees, and submitted themselves in worship of him. In their minds it was simple. It took a god to dethrone a god. Priests from the temples of Memphis in faraway Egypt sent scrolls detailing Alexander's descent from the Egyptian god Osiris. Other priests from Greek temples in Asia Minor argued that his sire must have been Apollo's far striker, for his conquest knew no limits. The problem was that after a while Alexander began to believe it. He changed. He acted, thought, and spoke like he was a god. Even you, once his most loyal friend, began to distance yourself from his royal court filled with eastern sycophants, soothsayers, and astrologers. The unrivaled general who had once slept in the mud with his soldiers had adopted the ways of Persian kings, and would only sleep in a royal pavilion full of silk pillows, women, delicacies, and casks of wine. Though he continued to lead the army himself, always the first over the walls of a fortress or charging into the fiercest fighting on the battlefield on his magnificent stallion Bucephalus, utterly routing the enemy wherever they struck, the same as he ever did. After battle, he stayed away from the common soldiers. Men who had been on campaign with him for years, men who he began to treat like strangers. Perhaps it was because he knew in his heart no Greek or Macedonian would ever bow down to him as a god. Many of the older men had seen him as a boy, running around his father's army camp like an informal mascot. They loved him. He was their king, and more importantly their comrade and their friend. But they would never worship him. Then, after a decade of nearly non-stop wars and conquest across thousands of miles and deep into India, the men had finally said enough. They wanted to go home. They missed their families and were now to a man all rich. It was time for them to enjoy lives as wealthy estate owners, either back in Macedon or anywhere in the now vast empire. They were sick of war and would march no further. Alexander berated them, screamed, yelled, threatened, and threw tantrums with his unit commanders for days. But in the end, he, the god, was forced to agree to abandon his plans to push further east. What happened next forever diminished him in your eyes. Instead of backtracking the way you had come, through conquered and friendly lands with plentiful supplies, he insisted on the flimsiest pretext that the army marched through the Jidrosian desert. You know why he chose such a perilous path. He wished to punish his men for daring to mutiny. What was so sadistic about the route was that it was the camp followers that suffered the worst. Thousands died. 
many of them the families of the soldiers who had married while on campaign, his loyal subjects. You will never forgive him for that. Upon reaching Babylon, he and his courtiers and sycophants went on an excessive binge of feasting and drinking, at the end of which it was rumored that Alexander complained of stomach pains before falling into a comatose state. That was six days ago. Gathered around the room are most of his generals and high-level commanders, along with the heavily pregnant and stunningly beautiful Roxanne, the Bactrian princess who Alexander named his queen and carried his heir. Though she tries to hide it, you can see that she's been crying. She looks far more worried than most people in the room. She still loves him, you think. She has not yet realized what he has become. Beside her stand the generals, Alexander's Diadochi, the huge and burly warrior Antigonus Manoptolemus, One-Eye, overall commander of the Phalanx, the Sarissa-wielding foot soldiers that were the backbone of the army. Next to him, Ptolemy, commander of Alexander's companion cavalry. He looks every inch the son of Philip II of Macedon. He should, for all know that he is Alexander's bastard brother. He is speaking quietly with Perdiccas, the logistical genius who had ensured the army was always fully supplied. Just beyond them are the wily old warrior Antipater and his son Cassander, both staring down at the king and speaking quietly to one another. Suddenly Alexander sits upright in bed, sweat pouring down in rivers from his face, his eyes open wide, staring at something no one in the room can see. Then just as suddenly he falls back into his silken pillows. Everyone rushes to gather around the bed. Alexander, says Ptolemy, you are very sick. We must know your wishes in case you die. Who will rule? asks Antipater, his voice concerned, almost fatherly. Alexander's bloodshot eyes circle the crowd. You think you can see something resembling contempt or hatred in them. Then he raises one finger and looks like he is going to point to someone. But his strength fails him, and his hand falls limply to his side. Then his lips move. You and everyone else crowd suffocatingly close to the bed to hear him say, just above a whisper, The strongest. His eyes close, and with a final hiss of releasing breath, Alexander the Great is gone. Everyone in the room, but particularly the Diadochi, the generals, are eyeing one another, almost suspiciously. In seconds you witness eyes narrow in calculation. The strongest? What does that mean? Who? asks Antigonus One-Eye, and the room bursts into discussion. Certainly not me, you think. While you command an entire wing of the phalanx and have ridden with the companions, you are the least senior of Alexander's generals. Then, like a flash of Zeus's lightning, you see it. That spark of contempt, perhaps even hatred, in Alexander's eyes seconds before he died. He hates us for continuing to live. He wants us to kill each other for control of his empire and he knows we will. If he can't rule it, he'd rather let the empire burn. The world will be torn apart, you see it as clear as day, yet for the moment the other generals are still acting as comrades. You look at his corpse, his sweat reflecting the reflected light in the room. In death, at last, he does look like a god, for his skin glows gold. In seconds you've worked out your next move. You'll ride far to the east and take commands of the units you know will follow you, and then wait and see what the strongest do. For though you are not the strongest, you are the smartest. As Roxanne lets out an ululating tribal death cry, warning the gods that one of their own is returning to Olympus, you think, I can play this game because I'm smarter than them. The generals don't know it yet, but civil war is coming. Roxanne takes a deep sobbing breath and cries out again, and you think to yourself, no one will ever call me Selicus the strongest, but one day all men will call me Selicus the victor.
Let the smell of burning incense leave you, the cries of Roxanne and the weeping courtiers recede, and let Alexander's glowing body fade away. Come back to deep into history and hear me say, This is the tale of the most titanic battle the ancient world ever knew. Though there had been bigger battles, there had never been a battle to the finish by two more professional and deadly armies. The tale of the battle who would see who would rule over Alexander's empire and where an eagle got its wings. The saga of men who had once considered each other brothers that were turned into the deadliest enemies by a lust for power. The saga of the final stages of a vicious civil war that had gone on for two decades and caused the deaths of untold millions. The battle that would settle many old scores and signal the coming end of the wars of the Diadochi that poets named the Funeral Games. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep into the year 301 before the Common Era and experience the Battle of Ipsis. The Closing Ceremonies. Welcome. To understand the events of 301 BCE, we need to go back to just after Alexander's death. The Diadochi, from now on referred to as the Generals, in Babylon held a long meeting with the officers, and because they pushed their way into the vast throne room, many common soldiers. The army was deeply suspicious about Alexander's death, and wished to ensure that his rightful heir was supported. The problem was that there was no rightful heir as yet. Roxanne was pregnant, though in those days infant mortality was very high, and if she had a daughter, then the ruler would be whoever she married upon coming of age. In addition, Alexander had a bastard son, Heracles by his Persian lover Barsini, a strong boy who would soon become a man. He was dismissed because a bastard could not inherit the throne. Then there was the question of Alexander's half-brother Philip, whose blood no one could doubt, yet it was rumored, truly as it turned out, that he was mentally handicapped. The result was an agreement called the Partition of Babylon, where old and wise Perdiccas was chosen as regent until a clear heir was chosen between Roxanne's unborn baby and Philip. The other generals were given rough spheres of influence and sections of the army to control. This peace didn't last long. A series of violent assassinations, subtle poisonings, and small battles for control of every possible heir to the throne turned into a full-scale civil war across the vast empire. To make matters worse, many of the tribes and peoples that had submitted to Alexander revolted when they learned that he was dead, causing new wars to regain control of their rich lands. Chaos ensued, and there was twenty years of near-constant battle, total war. Just to give you an idea of the scope of the conflict, there were six full-scale civil wars, and huge battles like the battle for the Hellespont, Megapolis, the Battle of Byzantium, the Second Siege of Tyre, Gaza, the Babylonian War, the Battle of Salamis, and the incredibly bloody Siege of Rhodes. All huge battles, the likes of which had rarely been seen before. There were many more, not to mention hundreds of minor battles, thousands of towns sacked, and tens of thousands of skirmishes. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Believe it or not, I haven't even scratched the surface. What I'm telling you is humanity had not witnessed war like this before. As we approach the year 301 BCE, Alexander's heirs are all dead, poisoned or murdered. Even Alexander's mother, the lioness Olympias, is dead. Now there are just four factions left standing. By far the strongest and most powerful, Antigonus One-Eye and his son Demetrius, who hold Greece, modern Turkey, the Levant all the way down to Gaza, and the east past the Black Sea close to the heartland of the old Persian Empire. This faction is called the Antigonids. Ptolemy, Alexander's bastard brother, is firmly in control of Egypt. 
He had brilliantly used his blood relation to Alexander to have the Egyptian priesthood transfer Alexander's godhood to himself and his heirs. Always a brave commander on land, he had used the knowledge of Egyptian shipbuilders to make Egypt into the preeminent naval power, giving him the ability to project force anywhere in the Mediterranean. His faction, the Ptolemies. Macedonia, Alexander's homeland, is split between Cassander and his nominal vassal Lysimachus, who were forced into an uneasy alliance for survival because in the previous years they had been losing territory, all Greece in fact, to the Antigonids. Cassander's faction was the Antipatrids, named for his father Antipater, now long dead. The vassal faction, under Lysimachus, was called the Lysimachids, whose control of Byzantium gave them huge tax revenues from the trade flowing to and from the Black Sea. Far away in India, on the eastern borders of Punjab, Seleucus is losing a war against the Hindu emperor Chandragupta Maurya in a futile effort to expand his influence east. His faction, called the Seleucids, controlled the heart of the old Persian Empire, that being most of modern Iran and everything east, including Bactria, Afghanistan, and much of Punjab in India. These are the players. Don't worry. I'll keep repeating their names so you'll get used to them. Let's focus on Cassander and Macedon for a moment. He has been forced out of Greece by revolt and invasion from the Antigonids. The invasion is aided as his unpopularity soars when true stories spread that he had Roxanne and Alexander's young son and heir assassinated so he could claim the crown. In addition, during his rise he fought a brutal blood feud against Alexander's mother Olympias, in which she led armies herself. During this blood feud, murder, assassinations, and poisonings grew to such an extent that hundreds had died by the time Cassander trapped her in her fortress at Pydna. He ordered his soldiers to execute her, but they refused to harm the mother of Alexander. Instead, the families of some of the victims of her assassination campaign stoned her to death. The common people revile Cassander, yet his control of the nobles and more importantly the army is absolute. Therefore, when the Antigonid army landed in Greece, all of its cities were eager to go over to one-eyed son Demetrius. To make matters worse for Cassander, Demetrius marries the princess Diadamia, Pyrrhus of Epirus's sister, and brings the formidable warriors of Epirus to his side. This further tightened his vice-grip around Macedonia. In desperation, Cassander reaches out to a rival, technically an informal vassal, his neighbor Lysimachus, based in Byzantium. The two leaders agree that the Antigonids are the major threat and decide to form an alliance. In addition, they send ambassadors to Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus in faraway India. In essence, they say that if they didn't unite against the Antigonids, that they would be picked off one by one. The idea is for them to all attack Antigonus One-Eye in Asia Minor from all sides and overwhelm him quickly. Ptolemy in Egypt agrees and invades what is now modern Israel with a large army and begins ravaging the countryside. Cassander stays in Macedon in case of a move from the Antigonids in Greece, while Lysimachus marches a large army into modern Turkey and begins to win over towns and even large cities as he advances. It should be noted that after so many years of constant civil war, all but the most mightily fortified cities would readily switch sides at the sight of an enemy army, unwilling to endure the hardship of sieges and the horrors of being sacked. Antigonus One-Eye was alarmed by the bold move and fearing that he would be overwhelmed alone, he sent for his son in Greece to bring his army to join him in Asia Minor to counter the threat and hopefully prevent his foes from uniting. Demetrius set sail with his army bolstered by a small contingent of Epirate cavalry led by the young Prince Pyrrhus. And while all this was happening, Cassander's ambassador finally reached Seleucus in India. 
Seleucus had just concluded a peace treaty with the Indian emperor Chandragupta Maurya that made the Indus River the border between their domains. To seal the peace, Seleucus's daughter married the emperor, and he gifted his new son-in-law with an incredible 500 Indian war elephants, along with archers to man the castles on their backs and mahuts to drive the great beasts. With this gift, though he had lost the war in India, Seleucus had come out of it infinitely more powerful. He now had many times more elephants, the super weapon of the ancient world, than all the rest of the other factions combined. And just as his army reached its strongest, the ambassador arrived, and Seleucus weighed his options. The Antigonids were not idle. They had launched a propaganda campaign to the south near Gaza, which spread the rumor that Cassander and Lysimachus had been destroyed in a great battle. When Ptolemy heard this from many sources, he gave up the war and sailed back to Egypt with his army. The lie had worked and Ptolemy was effectively neutralized, not being able to support his allies. Without losing a single soldier, Antigonus One-Eye had removed one quarter of the alliance from the battlefield. With winter coming, the Antigonids, their forces now combined, moved into winter quarters close to Lysimachus's army in modern Turkey. And at nearly the same moment, Seleucus decided to join the alliance and began his epic march from Punjab. If we knew more details of how he managed to cover thousands of miles and pass mountain ranges without losing men, horses, or elephants in the dead of winter, this feat would eclipse Hannibal crossing the Alps to invade Italy. In other words, it would be the most famous march in history. In late summer 301 BCE, Seleucus reached central Turkey and combined his army with Lysimachus's. All knew battle was imminent. Soon after, near the town of Ipsus, the two sides faced off. The Antigonids were commanded by Antigonus One-Eye himself. Though he was now 80 years old, he still fully intended to command the battle and lead the final charge himself once his army put the invaders to flight. Demetrius, his son, took command of their 10,000 cavalry, nearly all of which fought as companions, heavy cavalry, the knights of the ancient world. These formed into dozens of diamond shapes of 120 companions with an officer at each point. This allowed them to seamlessly switch directions and launch charge after charge. At the time, they were the best heavy cavalry the world had ever known. This force was split in half and were placed on each flank. The core of the army was 70,000 Macedonian phalangites who fought in the neat and devastating Macedonian phalanx, the formation that had conquered much of the known world. In essence, the phalanx would hold the enemy army in position like an anvil, while the companions dispersed the enemy cavalry and then returned to take the enemy locked in combat with the phalanx in the side and rear. Finally, the Antigonids had 70 war elephants, capable of routing armies with a single charge. It was extraordinarily rare to have so many in one battle, and could have, should have, made all the difference, except for the fact that in this case, unknown to Antigonus, they were massively outnumbered. Seleucus was in overall command of the Alliance's army and stationed to the rear of his infantry. Lysimachus commanded their cavalry, of which there were 15,000. Their cavalry contained perhaps 5,000 of the heavy companions, with the rest made up of Eastern-style light horsemen. These fought with bows and threw javelins, very effective at hit-and-run tactics or killing at a distance. Common wisdom at the time was that they were no match for companions, and though they outnumbered the Antigonids, the lightly armored eastern horsemen were considered vastly inferior. The situation was the same with the infantry. Half of the 64,000 were experienced Macedonian phalangites, but the rest were a mixture of much more lightly armored easterners that fought with shorter spears or swords 
and were relatively lightly armored. They would not be able to stand for long against One-Eye's veteran phalanx. On paper, it would look like the Antigonids had a huge advantage. Not only did One-Eye have the numbers, but he also retained the most experienced troops, many who had ridden with Alexander. Except for one thing, well 500 things to be exact. Seleucus placed 70 elephants up front to match Antigonus's and kept the other 400 way behind the main line. It's entirely likely in fact that they were so far back that the Antigonids didn't even know that they were there. After all, no one had ever dreamed of anyone having so many of the devastating creatures. There is one other factor I want you to consider. Both armies were of incredible quality. These men had all fought in major battles before. All of them were professionals and experts at their jobs on the battlefield, and on that basis I truly believe there had never been a more epic clash. The plain where the battle took place was mostly rolling grassland, with many hills to the north, in front of which Seleucus had positioned his army. The battle opened with an elephant charge by both sides, followed closely by each army's phalanxes and other foot soldiers fighting in a line. The charge of the equal number of elephants on each side appears to have more or less cancelled each other out. This is not to say that it wasn't a terrible sight to behold. With each side's elephants were a contingent of skirmishers, most likely archers and slingers. It would have been a vicious clash, with both sides decimating the other. The Antigonid cavalry on the right wing charged the Seleucids. This was led by Demetrius, and this contained the contingent of Epirates led by their young prince Pyrrhus. Antigonus One-Eye rode with the left wing and kept pace with the phalanx to protect his flanks and was so in turn charged by the opposing side. Yet with their heavy armor and large chargers they could withstand and repulse the attacks from Seleucus's more lightly armored eastern horsemen. In the center, the two very long lines of infantry came together with deafening war cries. The combat would have been intense and given the skill of the men exceptionally brutal. However, the Seleucids were taking far more casualties than one-eye's solid phalanx. On the right wing, Demetrius led the massed ranks of his companions in a ferocious series of charges against the Seleucid cavalry. The fighting was savage, and both sides noted the incredible skill of Pyrrhus of Epirus. Now I could just tell you what happened during the ancient world's most epic battle, but this is deep into history, and you're with your friend and loremaster Arjun. Prepare to become one with Seleucus, mounted behind his infantry at this critical moment at the Battle of Ipsus, because it might have gone something like this. You are seated on your armored charger with your honor guard and a corps of signalers with their golden trumpets forming a canopy around you. You are in your gleaming armor with a long white horsehair plume running down from your crown to the back of your neck. Your body is covered in the greatest armor you have ever worn, fitted exactly to mirror your frame a gift from the Indian Emperor. Your purple cloak streams out behind you on the windy plain. A messenger from the right side of your phalanx rides up and hastily says, General Seleucus, the line is wavering and is barely holding in places. You look at the infantry in front of you. So much of the long line is obscured by the dust cloud that has formed around the over 130,000 closely packed and battling men. You can tell the fighting is fierce, but with visibility so bad you must rely on messengers like this for up-to-date information. It's clearly apparent, however, that your army is being pressed hard by One-Eye's dreaded phalanx. Tell the men to hold on. It won't be long now, you say and the messenger rides back to inform the captains down the line. You look to your left and see the cavalry battle where Lysimachus should have executed his planned retreat and lured the Antigonids to follow so that you can spring your trap. You search the cavalry battle for his banner, when your disbelieving eyes are drawn to a ghost. 
though his helmet is different, the way he moves and fights, almost gliding from one opponent to the next with such ease and deadly skill you have not seen since. Alexander, you whisper. Who is that warrior? you ask pointing. One of your guards, already mesmerized by the sight, says with awe, He's Prince Pyrrhus of Epirus. He fights like his cousin, you finish for him. Yet you hear the guard say Achilles at the same instant, which makes you recall that he is Olympias's nephew, and her family claim direct descent from Neoptolemus, Achilles' son. You can see the reason for their belief if all of her family fought like this. Pyrrhus fights like a hero out of the old stories. The fighting is savage and you begin to understand. Your cavalry couldn't perform an orderly retreat while being pressed so hard. Many were in fact being slaughtered because they were not as heavily armored as the companions. Just as you are about to order in another charge from your reserves, it happens. Your cavalry routs. Units turn and gallop off in terror with the Antigonids in hot pursuit. You look over your shoulder and nod at the previously designated signaler, and then hold up your arm with one finger pointed skyward. You then turn to watch the enemy cavalry chase your right wing from the battlefield and vanish into the distance. Now, you say as you bring your arm down to your side. The horn blares loudly, answered in quick succession by a series of blasts from trumpeters further and further away. You wait. You feel them before you see them. A slight vibration coming from the ground. You are forced to tighten the grip on your horse's reins as he becomes anxious and bucks. There, one of your honor guards says, pointing to the horizon beyond him. Then you see them. Impossible to miss. Four hundred Indian war elephants charging, not the enemy army, but to cut off the Antigonid cavalry. The massive beasts devoured the distance with their long strides and stamina. You then point to another signaler, and he blares his trumpet. From the same direction the elephants had come, four thousand light cavalry move around behind you to attack the now exposed flank of the Antigonid phalanx. They consist mainly of horse archers and javelineers. You know Macedonian tactics. You rode with Alexander's companions. The Antigonids would chase the routed horse away and then charge back to attack your infantry in the rear and on the exposed flank. The timing of your maneuver is perfect, for just now the diamond shapes of Antigonid companion formations are charging back to the battle, and they stop, confounded by the sight of the elephants. Your light cavalry hits the unprotected flank and decimates the phalanx, rolling up the line section by section. The exposed phalanx is massacred by the unending rain of arrows and javelins. In desperation, a few of the Antigonid cavalry units try to charge the elephants, only to be surrounded by the giant beasts, then shot with arrows from the archers in the towers on their backs. The mounts they get close enough are gored by tusks and trod into the earth. Riders picked up and thrown, or swatted like flies by powerful trunks. There is no reversing this, you think, as you study the battlefield. I will be victorious. At least it might have gone like that. Cut off by the elephants, Demetrius and Pyrrhus could only helplessly watch as the long Antigonid phalanx was crushed by the rain of arrows and javelins from their flank and behind and soon they had to flee the field or risk getting trapped between the elephants and the Seleucid cavalry they had routed, which had reformed and was now returning to the battle. On the far flank of his army, the eighty-year-old Antigonus One-Eye fought on with his companions, still believing that Demetrius would return and turn the tide of battle. This was impossible, and after the Antigonid phalanx was destroyed, the men dead or fled, the Seleucid light cavalry took him in the flank, and he was killed in a shower of arrows. Alexander's strongest general dead, and with him the last hope of a reunited Alexandrian empire. 
Demetrius and Pyrrhus escaped to the coast and made their way back to Greece to continue the fight. The result was in essence the complete elimination of the Antigonids as a major power, and soon they would be utterly defeated. Of the 80,000 men in the Antigonid army, only 5,000 cavalry and 4,000 infantry escaped with Demetrius. The rest lay dead on the field. After the battle, a rough division of the empire was settled upon. Cassander got Macedon and Greece, Lysimachus and expanded Byzantium including vast parts of modern Turkey. Ptolemy kept Egypt and a few ports in the Levant, and Seleucus the most and by far the richest lands, from Syria to the Indus, Armenia to the Persian Gulf, and Bactria. Though this was not the end of the wars of the Diadochi, it was the beginning of the end. There could be no doubt who had won the funeral games, Seleucus Nicator, Seleucus the victor. I hope you enjoyed the closing ceremonies. I love creating these episodes for you. You can support my work by going to patreon.com slash deep into history and signing up for just 10 cents a day. As always, my friends, take care of yourselves. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.